Um, we are in James chapter 5, and, and as we open it, we're going to be talking about patience and endurance. Um, and as you yawn through the sermon today, just endure patiently, and we'll be getting along fine. If you're like me and you've ever read the account of the Exodus, and, and you see uh, Israel during the Exodus, uh, uh, you know, they, 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 they just crossed the Red Sea. How many days earlier? And, and uh, they, they, they've been freed from slavery. And yet, after three days without water, they come to Marah, and, and the place has bitter water, and they're murmuring against Moses. And, uh, and, and uh, it, it says in Exodus 15, Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And, and when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And as a reader of the Exodus in the comfort of my home in 20th, uh, 21st century now America, uh, you know, I, I would sit there and I'd read that and I'd think, boy, you guys just crossed the Red Sea. God parted the waters. And you're grumbling? You're murmuring? And see, as an American, I read past the fact that they went three days into the wilderness. The word wilderness means desert. And uh, if you've ever been hiking with me and I've been low on water, say, you know, uh, say in, at Glacier National Park, and I go on a hike and I didn't bring enough water, um, I get kind of owly. You know, I get owly real fast. You know, I get dehydrated. I'm not comfortable. I'm not having fun. And yet I'm on vacation. <laughs> and, um, and, and so I really think when I read about the, the, the children of Israel in the Exodus, three days without a water supply. Now, water is heavy. They had all of their goods and all the plunders of Egypt with them. I don't know how much water they carried as a matter of course, but water is heavy. And, and, and you'd be carrying water not just for people, but for animals as well, all kinds of livestock. Three days, they didn't have water. Um, you know what? I, I, I don't think I should be judging them. I, I think I'm way quicker to complain and, and get hangry, that hungry, angry, thirsty, angry kind of an attitude. And, um, and so I think, I think I need to look over at Israel, not down on Israel, when they are grumbling. Today's text is going to be talking about that, about patience, patient endurance. And um, if, we, um, if we look at the text here, we were just in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 last week. And let's just position the text real quick. Who is James writing to? Turn to James chapter 1, verse 1. James 1, verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So who is James writing to? He's writing to Jews, Jewish believers, who were dispersed. They were in some dispersion. We think it happened right after the stoning of Stephen. And, and so, and, and he immediately jumps into the subject of trials. And nobody would be reading this letter saying, what trials? What are you talking about? Uh, you know, no, they've been dispersed from their homes. They know exactly what he's talking about when he talks about trials. Now, last week, we saw this in chapter, look at chapter 5, verse number 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eating, your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who have mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. 
The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived in the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Okay, now, some people think that today's text is just James wrapping up his letter. And, hey, you know, while I sign off, I want you to be a very patient, enduring kind of a Christian. That these are just a series of random, loose admonitions. But look at the first three words today. Be patient, therefore. Be patient, therefore. So all of this is tying into the text. He is writing to believers who have suffered at the hands of the rich. And he's saying, be patient, therefore. So let's see what his instructions are to this persecuted group of people. They've been dispersed from their homes. They've been abused by the rich, working for tenant farmers. The wages withheld. And and, and in some cases, it got quite abusive. It said they've condemned and murdered the righteous person. So let's look at verse number 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray. Father, I open your word today, and I do not know the, the, the countless trials that are represented in the room, uh, what each individual may be going through and enduring. Uh, Father, I pray that we would be blessed. I pray, Lord, that we would be blessed because we endure through hardship. Uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, correct our mindset. Uh, in our view, the Christian world should be a happy little world with no problems, but in the biblical view, it's a world with turbulence in which we are blessed when we endure. I pray that you'd help us to endure and be patient. Lord, guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin our study, the first point that uh, we're covering here with James, he admonishes us to be patient. And he compares his patience to the farmer who waits for the harvest. And he, he compares that to our waiting for the Lord's return. In other words, it all comes in at the harvest. For us, it all comes in at the Lord's return. Verse number 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, the harvest, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The root word for patience here is used four times in the text. The root word for perseverance, uh, endurance, is used twice. And we are to be patient, we are to be enduring because we have a focus, we're waiting for something, we're waiting for the resurrection of our bodies. This is something that as a Christian, you know is going to happen. You know it because the Holy Spirit has instilled in you faith. As you look at the world, you do not conclude that the world is a series of random mutations in matter that then specialize and, and, and survive so that we evolve somehow into these complex forms with these complex abilities and thoughts. You know in your heart from the Holy Spirit 
that there is an eternal state. You know that there is a resurrection. You also know it from God in His Word and in His creation. As you look at creation, you know that it does not end here. You know that you cannot live your life with reckless moral abandon and have no consequence eternally for that. Uh, You know from the Word of God that there is an eternity, that there is a resurrection, a resurrection to judgment and a resurrection to life. We know that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead 2,000 years ago. We know that He turned the world upside down by doing so. We know that disciples who had gone back to fishing in their own occupations came back and gave their lives to the truth of the gospel because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And we know that He is coming again. And it all comes in at that harvest. Like the farmer, it all comes in when Jesus Christ returns for us. The farmer's patience is a working patience, is it not? He is waiting for the former rains, the latter rains. There were distinct rainy seasons. in uh, There still are today in the Middle East that, that you center agriculture upon. But it is not... A lazy patience, it is a working patience. Uh, um, There is planting, there is tilling, there is weeding, there is guarding the fields. All in anticipation of a reward, and there is no reward until that harvest. Part and parcel of you living for your resurrection, for the resurrection of your body and the coming of our Lord, is delayed gratification. There are some things that you have given up because you are waiting on the Lord's coming. You are not grabbing all of the gusto of life because you are laying up treasure for the next life, for the resurrection. And the resurrection is near. It is soon. The nearness of the resurrection is its nextness. It is the next thing on God's calendar. It is imminent. It is what's going to happen in human history next. It's the next big event. There are some things that we should stop and just review because this is based on the coming of the Lord. What does that look like and what do we believe about the coming of our Lord? A few very basic teachings that we want to remind ourselves. One would be this, no man knows the day, no man knows the hour. This was stated 2,000 years ago and how true it has been. How many generations of Christians were sure this was it, that, that, that Jesus was returning in their lifetime? No man knows the day, no man knows the hour. And anyone who thinks they do are misguided, and and William Barclay says that they're um, even even a bit uh, blasphemous, because Jesus, in his human body, could not figure out the day or the hour. It was beyond him. It's very presumptuous for you to think that it's somehow apprehendable to you when our own Savior said it was beyond his reach as a human being, when he had set apart the independent use of his deity. He did not know the day, he did not know the hour, nor do we. The scriptures present the day of the Lord as something that is sudden and unexpected when it happens. So in other words, there's no, oh man, I got to really shape up, I got to get ready for this because I can tell it's coming. Uh, We're within days, we're within months, we're within just a few years. There is no preparing in that way. 
the preparation that Jesus Christ gave 2,000 years ago and 2,000 years of generations have passed. And he has said, be ready, be watching, be waiting. There will be no extra time for getting ready. And how do we wait? How do we watch? Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, as we think about this waiting, we want to be very careful that we do not despair, that we do not forget either, going about our lives and just simply forgetting that Christ is coming. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. We're just going to read a few verses to get our mindset into the biblical mindset regarding the coming of our Savior. 2 Peter 3, verse 4, they will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. It's interesting that Jesus Christ told this generation to be ready, that, that he was coming soon. And yet this same generation under inspiration also said that this is going to take such an amount of time that people are going to mock. They're going to say, when is he really coming? Things have continued for generations, and he still hasn't come. Verse 5, for they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged, it was flooded with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Uh, the, the people forget there was a judgment by water, there is going to be a judgment by fire that is appointed of God. Verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is, it was one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. In the passage of saying a day is like a thousand years, the Lord is not slow. But He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? See those adjectival nouns? Holiness and godliness. You want to prepare? You want to be ready for God's coming? Be holy, be godly. Waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord. When it says hastening the day of God, in, 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 in Peter here, when he says that, hastening, how do you hasten the day of God? It's not talking about you making it happen sooner. It's talking about the fact that you are working toward it, that it is a busy waiting. It is an active waiting. You are actively serving and engaging in sanctification. Waiting and hastening. Uh, the, the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ by putting on holiness. Be busy about it. Be hastening. Some people believe that the scripture here records a mistaken expectation on the part of James that he expected Jesus to come in his lifetime and, and that soon meant within his lifetime and that this is a mistake that is recorded in scriptures. But James is entirely consistent with Jesus. Listen to Jesus in Mark 13. You don't have to turn there, but in Mark 13. But concerning the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. 
Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at night, midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. All generations, the, the command has been the same, stay alert, stay awake, hasten the day of the Lord, be preparing for this day. Jesus clearly wanted 2,000 years of generations to remain alert, sanctified, serious, and ready. If you are going to do that, you need patient endurance. We not only wait for the resurrection and the reward, we also wait for the judgment of the wicked. The wicked is not delaying his gratification. The wicked is, is just bathing himself in gratification and mocking you for not. Uh, sometimes the wicked is able to gratify himself by abusing the righteous, which was what was going on in this text. And that's what we were reading in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 last week. So not only do we wait for the resurrection and the reward, we also wait for the judgment of the wicked who oppress us. And again, it's like the farmer. It all gets resolved at the time of harvest. This is important for Cornerstone Baptist Church members and friends to keep in mind. Patience does not allow the verbal disharmony of grumbling. Verse number 9. This is not random. This is not a random, oh yeah, by the way, don't be grumbling people. No, this, this relates to being patient. This relates to enduring. This relates to the coming of our Lord. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, keep in mind, these people are in the midst of hardship and trial, real hardship, real trial. We saw it in chapter 1, verse 1. They were dispersed from their homes. Uh, we saw last week that they were being abused by the rich. From all of this abuse comes a temptation to grumble. And not just to grumble at the people who are persecuting you. Do you see in verse number 9 who you're grumbling against? If, if you're reading this letter, do not grumble against one another. As we look at what the rich were doing to the poor, in, in chapter 4, at the, end of the ver- at the end of that chapter, verse number 13, we were dealing with the merchants. The merchants were presumptuous. Come now, let's go to this city, we'll buy, sell, we'll get gain, bang, bang, money. We got, we got the world by the tail and, and we're just riding it. But then in chapter 5, verses 1, verses 1 through 6, we had the rich who were not just presumptuous, they were evil. They would work you and then they'd withhold your wages. They were abusive. So much so that we question in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, are these people even saved? When verse 3 says, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire, that sounds like hell. But there are many places in the Bible where the Bible will take believers and hold their feet to the fire. And so it could be believers 
where, where, um, where James is holding the feet of believers over the fires of hell, warning them about how they are abusing other Christians. But it seems like James is not talking here at verse number 9 just about grumbling against the rich. In verse number 9, he says, do not grumble against one another. It, it seems like 360-degree grumbling is possible when you're under persecution. Not just against the perpetrators of evil, but us grumbling against one another. Can you imagine Christians being persecuted, all suffering together, and yet grumbling against one another? If you want a nice illustration of this, think of the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, did anybody in this room cause that evil? Uh, did anybody cause the evil that occurred during the pandemic? Did anybody cause the evil that came out of the pandemic? And it doesn't matter what side of the issue you are on. Nobody in any local church in this area had individual believers causing the evil. Yet every church in this area, including Cornerstown, had a great deal of temptation to grumble. Against who? One another. People with difference of opinion on how to, how to, how to cope in, in, in the problem. Intending no evil, just having a difference of opinion. If you've ever wondered at Israel's grumbling in the wilderness with three days without water, just look at us grumbling in the pandemic. I mean, we had shelter, food, clothing. There was some financial hardships going around for sure. There were some financial threats, and that's serious. But in terms of our basic needs of water, And food. I don't know of anybody who was suffering thirst for three days. Yet the temptation to grumble against one another was there. And it was there with Israel. So again, I just think whenever we read about Israel, we don't want to look down on them. We want to look over at them and learn about ourselves through their response to hardship. And you might think, well, persecution will be different. Because the pandemic, that really wasn't persecution. And I suppose that could be even debated in some regions and responses and things like that. And and somehow we think that persecution, being persecuted in the name of Jesus, is just going to have this sense of nobility to it where we're all going to rise above it and say, yes, I'm going through this, um, but it's God's will that we be persecuted, so God help us to just be strong. And somehow you're just going to be above it all. That's like me being with the children of Israel on day number three when I'm hangry and thirsty and in a hot desert. God, I have a prayer request. I haven't drank anything for 24 hours. And if it be your will, please, you know, no, I think these things are hard. I think persecution is going to be hard. And I think that the temptation will be to grumble against one another, even though you aren't the one who's doing anything to me and I'm not doing anything evil to you. There's just this propensity to grumble. By the way, I just want to add this. If you persevered with your church family through the pandemic, let me say as your pastor, well done. Good and faithful servant. Um, that, that, that was a trial for all. And, and if you're still here, well done. No, no, I don't know of a single church that escaped tension during that time. Do not grumble. Here's how Ephesians 4 talks about not grumbling. Um, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Be patient. 
be gentle, be humble. When verse 9 says we are not to grumble against one another, that means we are not to be saying things about other believers, brothers and sisters, that are derogatory or demeaning. And you're like, well, you know, they did such and such, and I'm just retelling it. Is that derogatory? Well, if they were to walk into the room, this is the test, if they were to walk into the room and you would feel entirely comfortable and righteous to continue and, and, uh, and that they would feel, yeah, yeah, good with you sharing this, then, then it's not derogatory. But if all of a sudden you would shut your mouth and feel embarrassed and turn red-faced and the room would get really uncomfortable, then it's derogatory, okay? You need to not be saying that type of thing about your brother and sister. Yeah, this is just one of these texts that stands out as patently true. It knows humanity better than humans do. We need to guard ourselves against grumbling in the midst of hardship. And why in this text? Look at verse 8. The Lord is coming. You also be patient, establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It is imminent. It is next. Number 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold! Look at this. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, that phrase in verse number 9 sets me off balance theologically. We stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ at the judgment. There is therefore now no condemnation to those of us who trust Christ as our Savior. And yet this is being written to Christians, and it's a warning Uh, You better stop grumbling about each other because the judge is at the door. Jesus' coming is imminent. It is what is next. And you had better not be found grumbling when he comes. So how do you balance that? And I don't know. We stand without any condemnation. We stand in the righteousness of Jesus. I, I certainly believe that speaks of our acceptance in the Father, uh, to, uh, before the Father. I believe that that, that, that that stands for our position throughout all of eternity. But there has to be some way in which if you live your life as if Jesus is not your Lord, if you live your life with total disregard to his will for your life, that when he comes, you will wish you hadn't done that. And I don't know what that looks like. But there's going to be some sense in which you are living for yourself. If you are living for this world and Jesus comes today, you're going to wish you hadn't. The judge, the Christians are being warned, behold, the judge is at the door. This is brothers. This is one another. But the judge is standing at the door. So you better shape up. James leaves us with some examples. These are Jews, so they knew the prophets really well and the stories of the prophets, and they knew Job really well. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. I'll just stop and say that didn't always go so well for the prophets, and the Jews knew that. Jesus could say, you are the one who who murders the prophets, Jerusalem. Verse number 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, these are Jews. They knew the book of Job. And the book of Job is a tremendous piece of wisdom literature because right at the very opening chapters, the narrator lets you know things that Job doesn't know. 
the, the narrator lets you know that there was a conversation between God and Satan. Totally, totally uh, uh, something that, that Job was totally unaware of. As he goes through the entire trials, Job did not know this conversation had taken place. But you get to know. And you get to understand as you watch all of these horrific trials unfold. And all of the mental anguish of Job and his friends trying to figure all of this out. You know God is good. You know God is testing Job because God loves Job and God trusts Job. And, and, and so you've seen the steadfastness of Job, it says in verse number 11. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If he is so for Job, he is for you as well, would be the point there. And verse 11 speaks of the blessing of those who endure hardship like Job and the prophets. The, the blessed. To be blessed is not to be um, happy. <laughs> to be blessed is, uh, blessed is a fact. Happy is no, it's, a, it's a little less concrete. It's kind of a, an emotion, if you will. It, it, it's a little more difficult to nail down. And, and somebody is blessed if they are steadfast. And this is just a fact. It's not a feeling. It is a fact. If you are steadfast, you are blessed. Now, if you are doing the most fun, luxurious activity in the world... There's no such thing as being steadfast in it. Uh, you know, if, if, if your thing is drinking fruity coffee and, and eating uh, dainty desserts, uh, you know, and you just eat dessert after dessert after dessert, nobody's going to sit there and say, man, Tim is so steadfast. He is so steadfast in his dessert eating and his fruity coffee drinks. No, steadfast assumes turbulence. Steadfast is like the, the wide receiver who gets the ball and, and breaks tackle after tackle after tackle after tackle. Now, he would rather just be able to run a straight line to the goal and, and get the score. But when we see him endure tackle after tackle after tackle, we say, man, uh, there's a guy who is blessed, okay, because, uh, you know, he is blessed with skill and he is blessed with endurance. And, and, and we don't know what he's feeling, uh, you know, other than maybe some pain on the field right now and some exhaustion. We don't know what he's feeling, but we know what he is. He's blessed. And so blessed is the one who endures. It's not a feeling. It is a reality. It's part of their story. It's part of their story, your life story in glorifying God. It's like comparing a, a, a lady who started a, a, a small furniture shop and built it into an empire over years and, and much turbulence. And, and when you sit down and you listen to her story about how she did this and that and, and everything, it's just so fascinating. There, there, there's just so much glory in that. And, and now she's breathing rare air. She's a wealthy individual. And next to her is somebody who won the lottery. And that person won hundreds of millions of dollars. And you say, so what's your story? Well, I went to a convenience store. I bought a ticket. And it won. That's not all that fascinating. I mean, that, you, you cover that in about a five-minute conversation. There's just not a lot of glory in that. There's not a lot of texture or a lot of detail. But this lady who endured, who persevered, who worked hard and has has. Thousands of stories to tell. This is a person with depth. 
even so in your walk with God, God does not bring you to Jesus Christ and then immediately usher you into his presence, into a place where you do not have to exercise faith, where you do not have to endure. God has appointed a very distinctive life for you, and at times it might be like the trials of Job. But you've seen how God was with Job. You see how he is merciful and how he is good toward you, and he is, he is full of purpose toward you. So endure and know that you are blessed. And blessed does not mean happy. It's not subjective and emotional. It's factual. Jesus could say, blessed are the hungry, for they shall be filled. As he spoke those words, they were still hungry. And the point of their filling would be at his coming, at his return. And this is a fact that God uses poverty and hunger to draw people to himself. And poverty and hunger is not something that feels happy, but God uses it and causes them to be blessed. Even so, God uses manifold trials to draw you to himself and to draw you to to walk with him, and you are truly blessed. Endure. This is one of the uh, encouragements I like to leave with uh, young men who are just coming at that age. And I was just speaking to somebody recently and I hadn't seen in a while. And, and, and this young man, uh, you know, uh, last time I had seen him a long time ago, he would have mocked the idea of marriage. You know, didn't want anything like that. And, and now he's at that age where he's doing things, preparing his life, um, you know, professionally, spiritually, to be a godly husband. And, and it just, it's neat to see when, 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 that, when that change happens in a young man. And I always encourage young men to be those who endure, to be the rock. Your future wife wants a man who is stable, who is a rock, who is able to endure the uh, father of your future wife. <laughs> Once a young man who is a rock, who is able to endure. It's a wonderful, wonderful quality. And if you are in a situation right now where you have to endure some things and be faithful to God, you are blessed. You might question, well, didn't Job complain to God? Barclay says, Job is no groveling, passive, unquestioning uh, submission. Uh, Job struggled in question and sometimes even defied, but the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. I like to compare Job to the Psalms. The Psalms say some hard things to God. Uh, I pray night and day and you do not hear me. Uh, if that is a part of your Christian walk, it is not a foreign concept to the Scriptures. The psalmists record boldly. Those prayers, those cries to God where it is just hard. It's hard, but it's full of faith. They wouldn't be talking to God in the first place if they didn't believe. And so they make their appeal toward God. It's full of faith, it's difficult, and they endure. Even so, like the prophets, like Job, you are called to endure. So God calls you, Christian, to a life of patient endurance. It's a blessed life that waits on the Lord's return to set everything right. It all comes in at the harvest. For patience, we see that it is founded on the coming of the Lord. He will judge. He will reward. It's like the crop farmer who waits for everything 
at the harvest. It's an act of patience. There is sanctification. There is service. It's an act of patience. We hasten the day of the Lord. We don't make it happen quickly. We hasten in the sense that we are busy preparing for the day of the Lord every day. Sanctification, service, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Big warning, don't grumble. You are enduring some things. Don't grumble at one another. The judge is at the door. We are tempted. We will be frustrated at the wicked. God will judge them, but we will even be more frustrated at our brothers who didn't cause any of this. Do not grumble. And then third, as the prophets in Job remind us, uh, we are called to endure God is blessed when we have that opportunity to endure. So have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? That you stand in His righteousness? I hope so. And if you are trusting Him as Savior, I hope you are also trusting Him as Lord. That you are enduring, that you are faithful, that you are looking to His coming to set everything right. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for your word, and thank you, God, for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We love him, a king who will reign and rule over us in absolute wisdom and perfection. Father, we look forward to being servants of King Jesus in the kingdom, and we look forward to the eternal state in your presence, in his presence. Father, I pray you'd help us to live in light of the resurrection, that we would endure, that we would be patient, that we'd be like the farmer that, God, we would live for the eternal harvest that you have promised. Give us strength. Give us faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.